CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's more dangerous to connect Bitcoin to human rights than to terror in the Middle East. Once you connect it to human rights, people will get extremely scared. This is the difference between like a dictatorship and a democracy. Exactly. In a democracy, what the government banks will try to do is say that Bitcoin is, is too close to terror. But in dictatorships, they'll say, oh, it's too close to being used for human rights and um, you know, democracy work, because that's the equivalent of terrorism in your country, right? Exactly, exactly. Hello, everybody. I'm Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn, joined today by Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation and Syrian entrepreneur Mo Gashem, who teaches refugees about Bitcoin along the Syrian-Turkish border. Today, we're going to talk about some of the ethical nuance surrounding censorship resistance. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Thank you. Our pleasure. Mo, can you start us off by sharing a little bit about how you've used Bitcoin and what your students find useful about this technology? Yeah, sure. I initially started uh, to learn about Bitcoin when I was trying to solve payment issues in the Middle East and North Africa. That's where I had my startup in the e-commerce space. And I thought it isn't working in the region. And that's where I came across Bitcoin. And then I decided to stop everything I'm doing and learn about it because I was shocked how much I don't know about what's going on. As I started to learn more about it and really loved the whole concept, I thought we need to learn about it as Syrians, not only about the price. And I did a few workshops in uh, Istanbul this year and last year, where I just try to contact whoever I can to come and join a workshop about cryptocurrencies and uh, Bitcoin. And that's how, how it started. The last one was uh, about three months ago. I did one in Istanbul and one in Gaziantep near the borders in Syria. About 50 students joined both the workshops there. So in general, why are your students curious about Bitcoin? What are their needs? To be honest, I think... At the beginning, it's uh, something that everyone is talking about. Of course, the price plays a, a big factor that everyone is talking about this thing that is uh, growing on a daily basis and it goes up in price, but they don't know about it. And no one in the community tell them about it. So the minute we say that we're going to do something about Bitcoin, people, because they're curious, join. And I don't think they know what they're be at the workshop or what they're learning. Because I asked, what are you expecting? People didn't really expect much. They just wanted to know what's going on. And once they do learn, are there any ways that they find Bitcoin particularly useful for their various situations? In the majority, not yet. I've been thinking, how do I tailor the, the workshop to make it more useful? But something very interesting, for example, two students have been continuously contacting me and sending me WhatsApp messages about one of them 
want to buy a miner from Turkey and ship it to Aleppo where he has a small shop where he can plug it and, and mine. Another person was trying to introduce a solution for refugees in Gaziantep where there are a lot of banking restrictions. I think it needs more work and effort from me and whoever wants to help in order to make it more understandable for them and for them to get used to it. And I think they will start figuring things out. At the end of the day, I just did two days. I need to do more and we all need to do more, whoever is is trying to help there. I definitely want to return to the idea of where it's useful, when it's not useful, and what it is we can do to promote its usability. But first, let's take a step back for a broader global perspective. Alex, what kinds of human rights use cases have you heard of Bitcoin being used for around the world? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you and Mo. What's interesting is that from my experience just interviewing different human rights activists from different parts of the world, I think a lot of the uh, folks who are actually using Bitcoin are are not uh, talking about it. They're not like advertising it. They're not putting it in their Twitter profiles. And they're really probably not telling you about it unless you really dig in. And I think that's because money is such like a, uh, not only emotional, but a sensitive topic uh, in many places. And while these activists and dissidents and journalists may be breaking the law with their speech, I think they feel, and I'm not sure what's your opinion on this mode, but I think they feel a little even more risky when they're breaking the law with money. I mean, they could go to prison for the same crime. But there's just like a little bit more danger, I think, in their mind around the money piece. But for example, I met a very high profile Arab activist recently at a gathering that my organization put together for activists in the region. And we were just chatting about different topics. And then Bitcoin came up and he started to let on that he knew a little bit about Bitcoin. And then as I dug in, it, it really appeared and emerged that he had been very deep in the space for years, but doesn't tell anybody. And I think that that's like a little more common than we think. But just to give you an overview of some of the examples I've encountered, I think uh, the big one for me right now is like helping activists fundraise using Bitcoin in a relatively secure way. So if you look at like Hong Kong Free Press or Tor Project, these are two civil rights, civil liberties organizations that are able to receive Bitcoin donations via BTC Pay which is really helpful because it's, it's much more privacy protecting than just like pasting an address on your website. So that's something that I'd like to work with experts to teach more and more activists how to do because it really allows them to receive donations from, from anyone and in a way that the banks really can't control, specifically in Hong Kong. The second largest organization doing legal and medical aid for the protesters there has had their bank account frozen for a while, the Spark Alliance. So it's like $7 million that's been locked up there. And uh, obviously, that demonstrates the need for an alternative payment system. In Russia, you're seeing the same thing where not only is there like this law that prevents nonprofits and think tanks and civil society organizations from receiving foreign funding, but they also often just get harassed. Like you'll see like Navalny's organization get its bank accounts shut down, etc. So given how easy it is to turn Bitcoin into fiat in Moscow and in Hong Kong, there's a huge opportunity to help activists and educators and dissidents establish this alternative means of payment. The tricky part, as Mo is saying, is like there's like a lot of usability and trust issues, and that can only just be solved by like education over time. So I think that's like the main use case that I'm looking at right now. It's so interesting because you're hearing a lot of activists and protesters and people that are working in human rights and different regimes 
Mo, I've heard a lot about what you were speaking of, people that are trying to basically use Bitcoin as leverage for job creation and for international transactions, maybe where there's a highly educated potential workforce, but there's not a lot of local opportunity. And there's a lot of restrictions on different banking options and and payment options. For example, PayPal doesn't work in the West Bank. I've also heard of domestic abuse victims or harassment victims or sex workers here in the U.S., using crypto for their own safety and independence for completely lawful transactions that have nothing to do with compliance standards, more about social norms and social risks. We've seen lawful censorship technology before with Tor and VPNs. Alex, do you think it's possible for lawmakers to eventually see Bitcoin as a tool for promoting social good instead of as a gambling instrument or a compliance circumnavigation instrument? This is a timely time to discuss this. Obviously, it's being discussed in the U.S. Congress. I think it really comes down to the structure of the regime. I think in a place like the United States or England, it very well may be that voters and citizens can force governments to allow, through both lobbying, through 501c3s, 501c4s, etc., you know, like a more open financial system. I think it's highly unlikely that in dictatorships and authoritarian regimes, governments are going to be like willing to allow citizens to use Bitcoin. However, as we've seen, enforcement is like really difficult to ban anyone from using anything in any kind of society. So even in like North Korea, where the government has banned foreign information, like some massive percentage of citizens have seen outside media using USB keys. You can look at marijuana laws in the United States, and we could go into probably things that are banned in countries like Syria, like people find a way. And that's stuff that's physical. Now we're talking something that you can literally memorize in your head if you wanted to or write down on a piece of paper. So the idea of like a ban on, on Bitcoin possession is, is really outlandish, I think, from an enforcement point of view. So even in dictatorships, I think people will still find a way. But I think in democracies, it's, it's, it's entirely possible. I mean, we just heard representative of the U.S. government from the Fed the other day in, in Congress talking about how he didn't see America going the way of China in terms of creating this digital currency that would eliminate all privacy. Maybe he's being disingenuous, but I think there's something there in terms of like the American political structure and the people in in our country encouraging lawmakers to allow kind of like this de minimis thing where we can have private transactions up to a certain amount. I think that's entirely possible, but you know, maybe not in Syria, Mo. Well, I, I do really want to think about how in different areas of the world there are different contexts and circumstances. You're from an area of the world where terror financing is a pretty prevalent issue, and that's probably a concern for lawmakers in the U.S. as well. How do you as a Bitcoiner avoid being associated with that stigma if that's not something you have anything to do with? Are you talking about us or me outside Syria in in relation to the U.K. or U.S. law or in Syria or in the Arab world? I mean, more like when you talk to people about Bitcoin, And people have this association of, oh, the only reason that you would want to do something yourself without a bank or privately would be for something like terror financing. How do you counteract that kind of stigma yourself as a Bitcoiner? In our world, we don't have this conception because as you and Alex were talking, and it's worth mentioning, we don't trust our governments. And that's been for a long time. And by that, I mean, we don't trust even the banks because we believe banks are an extension for governments. And we've been used for years to keep the majority of our money outside the banks, especially in countries like Syria, Iraq, Egypt. We would put little money in the bank. 
So basically, we've been dealing with money outside the system for so long, although it's prohibited. And when Bitcoin is in a conversation, at least in my experience, no one asked me, but wait, it's only for terror. At least as Arabs, I spoke into the time I had conversations with people, it was the thing that they don't understand rather than the thing that is related to terror. You guys are used to being your own bank. Oh, of course. We hate banks. We, we, we never trusted banks. For example, an average student person would have millions in the house. That's very known and normal. It could be a mix of gold and dollar. To be honest, when I speak to Syrians or to Arabs, I tell them we're more equipped than Europeans and Americans to deal with Bitcoin because we know what it means to lose cash. They don't. They always go back to the bank. I try to present this idea that we are there using a new technology. I would agree with you 100%, Mo. When I talk to people in the Middle East and when I visit the Middle East, it's so much easier to talk about the concept of digital self-sovereign cash because people are so used to handing down assets, whether that be a Persian rug or whether that be gold jewelry. While in the US, a lot of times I have to get over the initial hump of, well, why don't you want to use the bank? Is there a reason that you wouldn't want to, or, or why not have your husband see your entire credit card bill? So I agree with you 110% that based on where you come from, your perspective, there are some stigmas that don't even apply and sometimes uh, different ones that might apply. But I have a controversy here. It's more dangerous to connect Bitcoin to human rights than to terror in the Middle East. Once you connect it to human rights, people will get extremely scared. This is the difference between like a dictatorship and a democracy. Exactly, exactly. In a democracy, what the government banks will try to do is say that Bitcoin is, is too close to terror. But in dictatorships, they'll say, oh, it's too close to being used for human rights and um, you know, democracy work, because that's the equivalent of terrorism in your country, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay, so you guys brought up exactly a point that troubles me quite a bit. Let's imagine that we don't trust people that have the power to print fiat and some of the people that make laws. It's really fun to talk about subversive yet uplifting use cases like helping refugees. But the reality is if an undocumented refugee can own Bitcoin, then a dictator can too, just like they used to have secret Swiss bank accounts. Does that bother you, Alex? Is there something we can or could do about that? Yeah, so I think there's a short-term answer and a long-term answer. Short term, you've hit the nail on the head. And just like any other new technology, whether it be the mobile phone, the helicopter, the internet, the credit card, even the modern banking system, I mean, bad people are going to have the same access as good people. And whoever a bad person is depends on your point of view, of course, and your perspective. But the permissionless nature of Bitcoin is not something we can like fix. It is a massive feature, not a bug. And over time, Police and enforcement in reasonable societies, they will learn how to continue to do their work with this new technology, just like they learned how to continue to do their work in an age of mobile phones and in an age of the internet. I think the stigma piece needs to be contextualized, especially amidst a backdrop, as Mo probably is very aware of, that you know, virtually all financial crime in the world is done by governments and banks, not by like the individual person or small groups of people. These are just literally lies that governments spread and say in order to scare us. I was at an event the other day with one of the chairs of the Federal Reserve, Lael Brainard, 
at Stanford University at a conference. And she literally said, you know, in front of 300 people, that a very high percentage of transactions on Bitcoin were illegal or illicit. And I actually stood up and said, hey, but the New York Times said last week that it was actually, you know, according to chain analysis, less than 1%. Where, and I said, asked her, where are you getting your number from? And she said, oh, from a, from a different study. And then she like brushed me off and moved on to the next question. I mean, the people in charge of the financial system are literally, you know, lying about Bitcoin to try and get you away from it. And maybe in my country, that's going to be under the excuse of terror, but maybe in most country, it's going to be under the excuse of human rights. So Mo, I'm going to give you the next step of that that troubles me. I want to hear what you think about it. So what if the people who print the fiat manipulate a local Bitcoin market simply through their buying power? What if they manipulate the market through social media propaganda? Does that matter if the individual refugee can still transact without permission? Or does the inherent power dynamic we live in undermine the purpose of Bitcoin? It doesn't matter. For us, we always trusted the dollar and the gold. We put little trust in, in our financial infrastructure. And something here to mention as well, that's basically an answer I think I found only recently. Most of our parents always refer to the old days where the dollar was much cheaper than now. And now it's 50 times more than how it was. When my mom was uh, like in her 20s, she said $1 would be three liras. Now, before the war, it was 50 lira. So that's, you're talking about 15 multiples. We didn't have answer for, but I think my answer is the very bad monetary policy that we, we have. So that, it doesn't bother me as long as I have an exit of what's here. I, I want to give an example. I think for the Syria and maybe the Middle East and the rest of similar world, if you think about Bitcoin the same way you think about how Facebook started, it was a breathing window for us to connect with the world. We used it extensively. And that's where we felt we can now express because we were never allowed to express our thoughts, at least publicly or in a group. We, can't, we don't have the right to gather. When I think of Bitcoin, I think this is going to be the first time in our history as Arabs, where we can make money without getting into the system. I think that's what makes it really, really huge for us. Because two things any regime makes sure of, you make money through their channels and you don't learn. Not that you don't speak, you don't learn. Because you will become dangerous to them if you become educated. And you will be dangerous if you get money out of their system. That's why they didn't think of Facebook as a way to communicate and learn, or the internet overall. You see how, how I look at it? Yeah, I hear you there. I think there's this common misconception that people think when you own Bitcoin or you learn about Bitcoin, that inherently makes you value freedom more. But I think people have always valued their own freedom. And there's evidence that suggests that some people involved with widespread surveillance or oppression or even wars may also be Bitcoiners as well. What kind of tools or resources do you think we need more of for Bitcoin to enhance personal freedoms for marginalized individuals that are teaching themselves, rather than just as a tool for savings or capital flight among the privileged who already had that potential? Something happened recently, and it inspired me a lot. There was a kid who reached out to me asking me, okay, I'm working in a company and I don't enjoy it. He was 15 
years old. I think that was a year ago. And he asked me, what shall I do? I told him there's cryptocurrency world that you might have heard or not about. I think you should check it out. And I told him, I, I like the cryptocurrency aspect of it. I don't like anything else. All the applications, not yet. I'm not interested in it. But you could check it out. There's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, and there's one, two, three, four. The guy went went and contacted Ethereum Foundation to attend one, one of their biggest events. He did attend it, and there he asked one company to employ him. He was he interned there for three months. And just recently, they transferred money to him in Bitcoin. He sent me a screenshot, said, I, don't, I can't believe it. And this guy actually knew about it for months. And I think that's where hopefully we can do something about it. If we can fund people's learning, let's say three months, you get, I don't know, $500, $300 worth of Bitcoin if you learn on something. I'm just throwing idea in my head. But I think that could be a path. I was speaking once to a guy who wanted to start a company in the Middle East. I told him, I honestly think you shouldn't. If you learn about Bitcoin, even if you don't make anything out of it now, I think it will benefit you much more than starting a company in the Middle East. I lost hope about to do anything in the Middle East, to be honest. We will hit a wall regardless. I think it's normal. Sometimes we lose hope in the governance process where we come from and where we're so familiar with all the pitfalls and all the challenges. Alex, I want to hear from you because although terrorism and terror financing is certainly not a leading use case for Bitcoin, at least as far as I can tell, and I research it all day, every day for several years, extreme outlier of a use case. I know that it, where we come from in the US, that is a very leading concern among regulators and lawmakers. What do you think that can be done to regulate Bitcoin activity without crippling its value as a self-custody digital cash? I think that our time is better spent educating the people sharing this information. Governments are going to try and crack down and regulate on an open source permissionless technology. And it's going to be a difficult thing for them to do. And they're going to fail at different levels. They're not going to be able to stop the spread of this new technology. So, you know, what was really interesting is that uh, I had told Mo that I was one of the co-authors of this little Bitcoin book. And then Mo said, oh, this is so cool. Maybe I can get some folks to translate it into Arabic. We're working together on this project now. It's hopefully we'll have it out soon. But I think like pieces like this, like educational tools for the people are what at least I'd like to choose to spend my time on workshops like what Mo's doing. As far as like uh, time that we should spend convincing regulators that it's not a good idea to regulate Bitcoin, I think it's a little bit of a fool's errand just because like their entire career and structure of what they do is at stake. They stand to lose a huge amount of power in this. So if we're to be honest and frank with them, they're going to want to fight this as much as they can. So I would rather just spend my time working on education and helping people learn about how they can access this great equalizer. I think when you look at Bitcoin, there are many, of course, many, many aspects of it that are interesting from a human rights or an opportunity point of view, from an economic point of view. But, you know, we, we obviously understand the censorship resistant aspect. And you've mentioned the idea of a refugee earlier. So this idea of like the permissionless aspect where you don't have to KYC to receive money, very powerful. But really, the, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's the savings piece that's most interesting to me, like 
the fact that people can like put their time and energy into an asset that they control, which seems to be very in line with what Mo's saying culturally. And then they can have sovereign control over that. And there's no way for their governments to devalue that savings and they can move it globally. It just seems like such a fascinating uh, thing that we want to keep digging into, especially amidst the backdrop of some of these currencies. I mean, Mo, what, like the pound, like what, what's the exchange rate today? Like 450, is that right? It's a thousand, 1000. So that's like, that's okay. So it's a thousand, but like 10 years ago, it was 50. Yeah, exactly. How does that actually impact your life when you have such a massive amount of inflation? Basically, people now are just worrying about how to get their basics to live electricity, water. I think they don't have the capacity to think about anything beyond their necessities. I hear you guys. And I want to disagree with you, Alex, but also in a way that kind of agrees with you. When I was at the World Economic Forum, I was talking to a woman who's a veteran in reg tech, specifically serving banks and government institutions. And at first, she was very against the idea of Bitcoin. And then when I started asking her about specific human rights cases for for women, she was like, oh, I can see how that's very important and should be protected. And I was like, great. So what do you think the solution is? And she goes, okay, well, let's talk about specific ways that this is helpful. And maybe we can figure out ways that the regulation or the system for compliance reporting doesn't harm that type of use case. I think that education applies to all people. And maybe some people we won't be able to get on the side of wanting to help others. But a lot of people, human to human, look you in the face, will definitely be sympathetic to the desire to have personal financial freedom. Returning to that idea of education, I just hear from both of you guys how that is the main thing that we need to be focusing on, that entrepreneurs should be investing in. That's what's going to give Bitcoin sustainability. It's what's going to give it liquidity, ultimately, outside of regulated institutions. Mo, as you've been teaching newcomers about Bitcoin, what's the hardest part for them? To find a way to use it. Okay, so we got it. How do we get it and use it on day to day? That was, that was the biggest issue for them. And that's where I think if we find a way to sponsor little things that they do, hopefully they will get used to it. But basically how to cash in, cash out. I told them about exchanges. They understood that. Now, okay, how do we get more of that so we can get money out of it? I did a little test where I asked two girls, one inside Syria, one in Turkey, to do an audiobook for me. I was just testing this thing. But my condition that I only pay in Bitcoin and Zcash, I chose another currency so they can understand what's going on. They did it and the the girl in in Turkey took the Bitcoin and Zcash and uh, went to an exchange and got her $100 worth of, of uh, Turkish lira. And I think that's the only way it could happen. Let me just cover something quickly here. Now, if you look at the Arab world, there are many people outside Syria and we still think about home. When we educate people outside Syria about how they can send money, transact and do things, they will start creating an economy for between one another. There are many in Germany who only focus on the Syrian community. So they build, they build solutions in Germany that targets only the Syrian community in Germany and they hire engineers in Syria. This is a perfect case for Bitcoin. Right now, they send the salaries to Syria and they lose about 15% of the salary because they don't know anything else. These are the things that, that the cases 
if we work on the education from both sides, people will start experimenting. And you know what? I'll do it. Remittances and freelance opportunities for very capable workers around the world. I hear you as a really prominent use case for people who may not have extra money to save quite yet. I think we all remember how steep that initial learning curve was. We were trying to figure out how to use Bitcoin and what does that mean in our particular financial situation. Alex, what have you learned about money and human rights since you started engaging with the Bitcoin community? The big piece is that good educational materials are really hard to come by. Hence why I'd like to work with Mo to put more stuff that's, I think, for the average person who's not a technical expert into Arabic. And I think that'll be helpful. I think, you know, there's nothing that can replace like sitting down person to person with someone and have them showing you how to do something. I mean, even as someone who has access to all of the technical support in the world, certain parts of Bitcoin that are useful from a human rights point of view are really freaking complicated. For example, doing a coin join is really hard for anyone who is not a technical person. And I think that's basically going to be virtually impossible for people to do until the usability around that stuff gets uh, easier. Like it's going to be hard enough for me to set up BTC pay on somebody's website and show them that when those donations come in, if they go into a wallet that's on that person's phone that we've set up for them. And then when they need to shave off that Bitcoin into local fiat money to pay for stuff that they can go to a Bitcoin ATM or use an exchange, that would be a huge victory in my eyes. Privacy technology part of it is, is you know, a whole second layer that you'd have to build on later. And I just think it's almost not worth it right now because it's, it's so hard to use. There will be people who are driven to learn about it because of necessity, and then they'll start using it. But we're pretty far away in those areas. On the issue of you know, whether it's worth educating the authorities, I do a lot of this. Actually, I teach a class at Singularity University where I teach about 70 to 80 CEOs from huge global companies, also governments, every couple months. One of the guys in my class recently was like very high up in, in the, a very large European government. It's something I think is worthwhile for different reasons. But at the end of the day, you have to kind of think about it like, you know, would you go in Syria to the Assad family and try to teach them about human rights? That's a stretch. But like people who are in charge of the financial system right now, there's not a whole lot to be gained by going to them to say, hey, here's this new tool that's going to take your power away. Like they're not going to be super excited about it. Just to wrap that piece up before going over to Mo is that um, let's focus on the education part and Bitcoin's inevitable over time, rise in value against assets like the dollar will like force the hand of authorities. You know, the number go up thing will do a much better job of convincing folks than, than us uh, in the long run. Oh, I just wanted to comment on the idea that it's difficult. I think if you look at it from our point of view, we, once there's a way to do something, we'll go through the difficult path because sometimes we are blocked and we need to do something about it. That's where the internet came about. When internet came about, people in the Middle East didn't know how to build websites. And I don't know if you know, in the 2003 or four, there was sanctions against Syria, but there were a lot of entrepreneurs and people who wanted to build businesses that needed to buy services from US companies. And back then, it was only the US if you want to buy a domain or a server. We found ways around it and built services and sold even, that was very uh, funny, that we sold websites to the government that is sanctioned by the US government. 
Yeah, I don't think people remember how hard it was in the early days of the internet to, in the Middle East, access it. It was extremely hard. And my card, because back then, I came back to Syria from the States in 2003, and all cards will be blocked when I use them in Syria because I'm in a sanctioned country. We could find ways around it. I think the problem that people don't see the opportunity, that's what frustrates me, that we could do something about it. If you have an office in Turkey, you could build a service to do the coin join things to, to people. I'll, I'll give it to you where it's ready in your wallet. I, I've seen someone charging like $30 to set up a wallet for someone. And we do that. We still trust one another. We don't trust governments. And always remember that. Yeah, it's something else that's, I think, really important to, to point out in terms of context, global context, is, is these laws about privacy technology. Like if you think about what a coin join is and what it does, at the end of the day, what is it giving you? It's giving you plausible deniability because you've entered into a anonymity set with whatever, it's 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 people. It's like a judge could look at it and say, look, we know you were in here, but we can't prove it. So it gives you plausible deniability, right? But guess what? Dictators don't care. They're going to put you in jail anyway. So really, like a lot of the privacy stuff is more for protecting people who live in democratic societies where there's a rule of law. In dictatorships, it's like, I don't know if you want to speak to this, Mo, but like, let's say if you were in court in Syria and you're trying to argue that like, oh, no, 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 it wasn't me and you can't prove it. Therefore, you can't put me in prison. It's not like the judge is going to be like, yeah, fine. No, no, it's crazy. In Syria, a, a criminal, because they created a case against me and they saw a picture of me with Prince Charles somewhere. And they said, you see, he's working with the UK government. And that was part of my, my document as someone who's supporting the UK document only because I took a picture. We, we don't care. And if I comment here on the idea about educating governments or regulating Bitcoin, for me, as someone who's from the Middle East, I look at it this way. So Alex is going to be the person who needs to figure it out because he's in the States and he needs to figure it out for himself. I need to figure it out for my government because outside Syria, I know that there is a law. Inside Syria, there's no law. I'll try to figure it out there. And then when I reach a point where I know, okay, if someone like Alex and everyone else in the States can't use Bitcoin, then okay, fine. I will know I have a trust in the system that it will work for everyone or it will not work for everyone in terms of law. Did that connect to your question? I mean, I think you guys are both actually underscoring this specific point, and I'm very, very grateful to you, Alex, for the classes that you offer. You guys are both underscoring this point of like, needing to have social ties with people that you can learn from that are not necessarily credentialed. That's where you get the trust in them from, you know, whether it be like your brother or something, somebody who's not going to teach you how to open a wallet for 30 bucks. Yeah. I mean, let me, I'll give you an example. Like I, I ran a workshop recently with a leading opposition activist from Nicaragua. You know, a lot of times human rights activists don't even talk about money. They don't consider it something that's important. I remember doing an event in San Francisco years ago with a guy from Zimbabwe, and I asked him to come to San Francisco to talk about hyperinflation. And he was like, "What? why? Like, no one's ever asked me to talk about that because he's a prominent democracy advocate. And I said, no, it'd be really interesting for people to hear about what it was like to live through an economy where your currency kept falling and falling and falling. And he said, okay, I'll come. And he, of course, gave this like eloquent testimony about what it was like. And then during the talk, he takes out from under his shirt a necklace that has the 1980s Zimbabwean dollar on it. And he said, he actually says, hey, yeah, we, we all, a lot of us in the opposition movement, we wear this 
as a memory of what our economy used to be before Mugabe destroyed it. And I thought it was an incredible moment. It points to the fact that I think for a lot of people in the human rights movement, money and the economy is very important. They just don't kind of see it that way. So when we talk to this Nicaraguan woman that we're like trying to teach Bitcoin to, she's like, yeah, my bank account has actually been closed for like five years. Like I can't accept money from foreign entities. I have to do it in this super crazy roundabout way. And she was, let's put it this way, very excited to learn about Bitcoin. Awesome. So we've covered such a wide range of topics today. I want to give each of you the floor for just a few seconds each. If there's anything else that you want to leave the audience with that I didn't ask you about specifically. Mo, starting with you, are there any last words you'd like to share? There's something that I'd like people in the Bitcoin to look at outside the rich countries. If I'm, I'm looking at Bitcoin, the only thing that I see people are talking about and fighting about is the price. That makes me scared of Bitcoin rather than excited because I feel it's not something I can get. Let's say you're a rich person living in New York talking about Bitcoin. It makes me feel disconnected to it. And if you look at, for example, the story of Square team, Square Bitcoin team who paid a developer out of somewhere in Asia just to work full-time on Bitcoin, that's the things that if we focus on as people who work or contribute to Bitcoin to push to the rest of the world. Because if I live somewhere and I know I can be anonymous, work for something that is cool and different, and I can get paid on top of that as well. This is where I feel people who are heavily involved in Bitcoin might not pay attention to that. The rest of the world is, is watching and might get the wrong idea about Bitcoin. Thinking about how it is we can use Bitcoin rather than just how Bitcoin makes us rich. Alex, are there any last thoughts that you wanted to leave the audience with? Yeah. Earlier, we talked a little bit about how right now Bitcoin's such a level playing field, it can't discriminate. So therefore, good people, bad people, everybody's going to use it. And I mentioned that there would be actually a long-term effect here. And I'll just close with that. Long-term, look, governments and bad actors are certainly going to start using Bitcoin more. I mean, it's shocking that they don't already do more of it. I mean, it's shocking that governments that are cash-strapped don't realize they should be using their monopoly on energy in their country to mine Bitcoin. And I'm very grateful that they've been arrogant and ignorant and that they didn't do that while the first 18 million Bitcoin were distributed. That's like a fascinating thing that will have massive impacts on the rest of human history. So we can be grateful for that. But the thing is, they may start using it in the next three, four, five years. But the more they use it, it's like very much a tricky thing because the more they use it, even if they're using it for greed and to make money, governments are kind of like a very high time preference. And they're going to like use the Bitcoin to like get around sanctions or to move money around. And then they're going to convert it back to fiat or they're going to buy weapons. So they're going to have to pay their soldiers or whatever. So they're not going to be like holding this asset. And long term, you know, as they use it more and more, it's going to leak into the local economies. And over time, it's going to reduce their ability to control the economy. And it's actually going to reduce their ability to have arbitrary power over people. So I'm kind of excited about what I think will be like the long term effects of this technology, especially in places like Syria. I'm really hopeful and I appreciate your optimism and would like to see something like that happen. It would only happen through massive education efforts on an individual level and also on institutional levels for companies that are in the space, for sure. And I really appreciate you bringing it back to that 
historic and global perspective again. Thank you so much today for joining me, guys. And thank you, everyone at home, for listening in. Once again, this is Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn. Make sure to stay tuned for more podcasts every week. For more interviews and insights, check out Coindesk.com. Take care, everybody. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.